In the first half of today's Sixers Beat, Rich and I discuss Dave Yeager and his addition to the coaching staff and the new additions to the front office in Peter Dinwiddie, Prosper Karangwa, and Jameer Nelson. In the second half of the podcast, we bring on Jovan Buha, who covers the Clippers for The Athletic, to give his thoughts on Doc Rivers and his fit with the Sixers. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Rich? I'm okay, man. We got some stuff to talk about. There has been some uh, additions to the Sixers coaching and front office staff. Um, I guess real quick right at the top, head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixers Beat. You can get a yearly subscription for $1 a month. Still, still promo, still running, $1 a month. Lowest it's ever been. I might be a tiny bit biased, but I think, it, let, let me put it this way. If I wasn't writing for The Athletic, I would pay a dollar a month to go read Rich Hoffman. So go check that out. Go do it. We got been, some good stuff coming. Come on. One dollar. That's not That's not hard. And let's be honest. Even if we don't have good stuff coming, if we only have marginal stuff coming, it's still only a dollar. It's twelve dollars. Who cares? <laughs> right. Um Head on over there. If you've been on the fence for a while, if you know of Rich and I from the past, if you like what you hear on this podcast, Head on over there. This is the best deal you'll ever get for The Athletic. And, and not, only, not only do you get me, myself and Rich, but you get, you know, Shield Kapadia and Bo Wolf and Zach Berman and Charlie, who's a machine, and Matt Gelb and Megan and, and every other sporting team you and, want. Yeah, yeah. Anything you want, we have it pretty much covered in the sporting realm. So head on over there. Check it out. A uh, great deal available now. All right, Sixers staffing updates. You know, I think when we had last recorded, Doc Rivers had obviously been hired. We'd gotten a little bit of time to digest that. Not a whole lot of changes outside of that. I don't think there was a single member of his coaching staff that was added up to that point. I don't think there was any changes in the front office officially. So we have, I guess we'll start off with the coaching staff, and we're going to keep this one relatively short. We have a Jovan Buha who covers the, the Clippers for The Athletic, which you can also read his stuff for $1 a month. Head on over there. He's in, um, he will, he's in the package, too. He, he's, he's included. He'll be on the second half of this podcast to sort of give us his perspective on the Doc Rivers era there since he covered him. So we'll keep this pretty short, but a quick rundown, and then we can get into specifics. Dave Yeager, somebody we had talked about as a potential head coaching candidate, hired as an assistant coach. Peter Dinwiddie, hired from the... Indiana Pacers to be essentially Elton Brand's second in command, executive vice president of uh, basketball operations, which if that title sounds familiar, yes, there is somebody on the staff who currently has that title. We'll get into that as well. And then Prosper Karangwa hired from the Orlando Magic to be the director of scouting. Is that, did I get those job titles correct? I didn't write them down. I probably should. I don't know if you got the job titles right, but I'm impressed <laughs> that you got Prosper Karangwa, the name I don't know if you got it. We went over this right before the podcast to make sure we had it right. Well, I don't know if you got it right, but you certainly got through it smoothly. So that's that's the big thing. Um, yeah, I, I forget what Prosper. I don't I don't know if he his job title has been. Uh, it's definitely a scouting position of some sort. That that is where he came from. But but Dinwiddie, yes, he is the uh, what executive vice president of basketball operations. Um, the the number two for. Uh, Karangwa is the vice president of player personnel. My apologies. These titles are pretty funny, by the way. Oh, they they can be completely made up. They don't actually represent the uh, the role. Yeah. 
John Hollinger, who worked in the Grizzlies front office, he he has some very good uh, insight and jokes on uh, on how made up these titles can be at times. I mean, right now, Ned Cohen is still listed as the assistant general manager, and nobody really knows what his role is right now because you read Peter Dinwiddie's profile and you read Ned Cohen's profile, and there's a lot of overlap there. Definitely. So yeah, these job titles don't necessarily mean too much. So who are we starting with? Jaegerbaum? <laughs> yes, let's go with the... And I guess for your, your curious, Jaeger, um, spelled what? J-O-E-R-G-E-R. Pronounce Jaeger, like Jaeger. Um, or like a Jaegerbaum. When Woj broke it, that was a, a Jaegerbaum. Yep. Ugh, I couldn't do Jaeger bombs, man. I was always bad. With no, I was never a, a huge, huge fan. Um, there, there is a pretty funny meme out there though with um, Dave Jaeger as a Jaeger bomb. Which yeah. I'm sure we will use once or twice for every opportunity we get. Yeah, I will be making that joke all year if the Sixers make a big defensive stop, Jaeger bomb. And I, I guess we don't know yet what exactly Jaeger's uh, specialty on this coaching staff will be. I believe Keith Pompey reported that it's defense, but Doc has not come out and said that. That was sort of his role with the Grizzlies before he took over, right? Mm-hmm. That was his role. In, but uh, he also then grew into one of the, the league's probably better ATO play designers, so he can certainly do both. He probably has a little more background on the defensive side, though. Yeah, it's funny. When I looked at his uh, his background, I kind of was more interested in the offense, but it was pointed out to me that in, I believe it was 2011, 2012, he was the defensive coordinator in Memphis, Memphis, as uh, Chris Broussard <laughs> once famously wrote. And they were the second-ranked defense in the league that season. Obviously, had great personnel. And, uh, you know, they were very – they are basically the first-ranked defense. I mean, Indiana, they were neck and neck. Um, and as, uh, as our, our good friend John Hollinger, who, who doesn't have any reason to be biased at all, pointed out the East was a JV conference back then. It was true. It was pretty bad. So – you know, it, it seems like that that could be where he is slotted. I mean, it would make sense. Doc Rivers on his staffs tends to give the defense to somebody, um, whether that's Tom Thibodeau, it was Rex Calamian with the Clippers, whatever. That That is a big position. Um, well, I, I guess well, I like this hire. Well, yeah. What do you think about it? Almost nobody you talk to has a concern about Dave Yeager's basketball intellect. Like, I think everybody praises him really highly, to be honest. Uh, there's a lot of concern in terms of his ability to sort of manage the relationships both up and down the totem pole. Like, there's a, been a lot of conflict with him and upper management, which could make this team interesting, but we'll get into that later. And also then there was some concern in Sacramento in terms of dealing with sort of the expectations of his young players and letting them sort of play through their mistakes. Um, both Marvin Bagley, Buddy Heald, they're sort of the two main ones, but it seemed like it was a pretty common complaint or at least concern and not only inconsistent role, but also then communicating that role. That being said, if he's here as a essentially defensive coordinator, that doesn't really matter nearly as much. That's Doc's job to worry about. Um, he doesn't have to worry up or down nearly as much. Um, he has to worry a little more with the coaching staff and getting them to execute but no, in terms of like, if he's going to come here and be focused on helping the team execute and be the best they can be, I think he's a, I think he's a good, I mean, look, I had interest in him as a head coach and those concerns that I just talked about were much larger when you're talking about a guy who has to run a team like that in this role. I think he will be good. I agree. He certainly seems to, uh, to rub people the wrong way. 
in different stops, like you said, up and down the He's totem pole. He's very concerned about his job security. That's a very recurring theme, which yep. I get. Like, in Memphis, there were rumors that they wanted to fire him, like, five games into the season. Well, if that happens early on, it's like a relationship. If you get scarred early on, it's tough to not be worried about that later on. And let's be honest, like, early para-era Grizzlies and the Kings, not exactly the most well-run, not model franchises to be working for. So you don't really know whether or not he's, um, you know, just a little paranoid or whether there's really something there. But uh, yeah, for sure. I would also add, like, he, he did not have, you know, he had some run-ins with Buddy Heald. It's not like that stopped when uh, when he left, no. you know? So. No, and that's something that hasn't, like, I think the Sixers, are, Sixers fans are so like, yay, a shooter wants us. Well, but like, why does he keep getting angry at coaches? Like, it's a fair concern. The the Buddy Heel discussion will be one we can have in a couple of weeks when when free agency starts to come around. Uh, there, there, I've been listening to a few pods. There there have been some some pretty negative takes about him, which which have been interesting. But let's get back to Jaeger. Yeah, so certainly the interpersonal stuff seems like that would be more of a concern for the head coach. I mean, obviously, like he's going to be interacting with players. You can't have him be a complete ass. But no, but you have you have you have Doc who can maybe smooth some of that over. Yeah, and, and the one thing I will say, like you talked about job security with Jaeger, I do appreciate that Doc, if anything, has the clout and security to hire an experienced coach like Dave Jaeger. Like right. the old Mark Jackson thing where he wanted no name coaches because he didn't want to be threatened, and and Joe Lacob was all over him because he was like, why are we, you know, and not to say these guys are terrible, but why not try and shoot a little higher with these assistant coaches? Doc clearly doesn't care about that. He obviously uh, was very well compensated by the Sixers. The worst thing that he sees looking over his shoulder is is a Brinks truck, um, you know, if, if he does get fired. So, and, and Doc had a very high opinion of him. I, I had this in our story last week, but I remember listening to the, the Woj pod with him at Spolstra and Woj asked him, hey, is there anybody who's under the radar, whether like, you know, his team's not good enough or you know, for whatever reason, just doesn't get maybe the shine as a, as a coach. And both Doc and Zbolstra said Jaeger. And, and I do like that he has coached multiple styles of teams, even if the Memphis teams were, I mean, let's be honest, they were a little bit gross. I, I love, you know, how tough they were. I appreciate the, the physicality and that those teams seem to, achieve, and they were overachievers in some sense of the words. I, I did not really enjoy watching those teams play, though. As, a, as opposed to the clean style of basketball the Sixers are built to play? Yeah, I mean, hey, like, you know, he... But but it it's kind of like he understands how it is to work with poor sure. spacing. Uh, yeah, for sure. It's not like we're watching pretty basketball here, though. That's a great point. And to have that, which kind of seems like Embiid's world, and then to have the, the Kings teams with De'Aaron Fox that were faster than any team in the league, I think, in 18-19... In and then he got fired for kind of the interpersonal relationships. He he got fired. Vladi got a four-year extension. And then a year later, Vladi was fired. Yeah. So, Kings. look, I mean, it's true. Like, you can look at him and say, I'm not sure what this guy is is, you know, a behind-the-scenes type of guy. But to be fair, as you said, the Kings and the Grizzlies, not, not the most stable situations in the world. So, do you remember that whole, like, Robert Para, Jason Levian, like that era, era uh, Grizzlies. There was some uh, some weird infighting going on there. Yeah, yeah. So as an assistant coach, though, I think this is a great hire because basically everybody who you talk to around the league 
even even people who you know m- might have had like run-ins with him they will concede that on game days and with x's and o's and schemes and things like that he's pretty good he is he's well thought of in that regard i'm sure he views this as an opportunity to launch back into a head coaching job sure. at some point you know let's say the hey man the sixers make the finals he'll become you know the the hot coaching candidate who uh who turned this thing around so yeah overall i think it's a it's a pretty good first hire for doc we'll see what he does with the rest of his staff you know you got sam cassell and and all these other people with uh with some jobs still i guess houston's the only job still open is that right sounds right yeah yeah Pelican so maybe just hired Stan. maybe maybe they're waiting on that stan got hired in uh in new orleans yeah so you know again like am i uh Am I doing backflips for this? No, but I think it's a pretty good art. Can you do a back backflip? That would be impressive. If we just like found out that Rich can do a backflip, that's a great point. I uh, I cannot do a backflip. I always no, thought I, I was a pretty good athlete, but I was never, I was never like that flexible. You know, well, I, I good like hand eye coordination, never, but not not that type of uh, athleticism with the backflips. I never had the guts to try it. Like, do I know that I can do a backflip? No, because I'm not stupid enough to try it. Um, I would like to see you try. Well, maybe we'll do that. We'll film it. We'll we'll both try it, and we'll have to go. I don't to the know if being six two is the right body build to be. Well, six two and thirty eight years old is the right uh, body makeup to be doing backflips. But yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see. We'll put that one on the back burner. All right, moving on to the front office. And there was there was another addition, Jameer Nelson, as a scout and assistant GM Woo! of the Delaware Bluecoats, Woo! which I mentioned. Um, that's a lower level one, but I'm not going to lie. Which is interesting. Like, that dude was just doing podcasts like two weeks ago. Yeah. Look, and that's a lower level addition. It kind of reminds me, EB was the GM of the yes. the Blue Coats at that point. But it, it does kind of remind me a little bit of just like this very well-respected player jumping in to the front office side. And I mean, you know, you heard me cheering. I don't think any basketball fan in Philadelphia – there, there is like anybody who follows college basketball, no player has a higher Q rating than uh, than Jameer Nelson. And uh, you know, I I don't know how he'll be at this, but uh, I would like him to be good because I am a big fan of his. Yeah, for all the people making the joke that he is now one stop away from being the Sixers GM, no, he's two stops away. He first needs to get promoted to eighty seveners or eighty uh, seveners Blue Coach GM, and then he can be the Sixers GM. The 87ers GM, by the way, has had a, a couple people who have been promoted pretty highly in the NBA. Um, Brandon Williams, of course, and moving on to the Sacramento Kings, where he had a run-in with Dave Yeager, tying this full circle. Um, but yeah, no, Jameer is, I, I can't, like, as a, as a concept, like, sort of like the homegrown, we got to promote the former player who the fans love thing. I'm a little skeptical because a lot of times it doesn't work out. Jameer is a, a good guy. Um, I just growing up, like watching that St. Joe's team was one of my favorite. Um, I was in college at the time. Watching them was great. Uh, he is certainly, you know, you listen to him talk about the game. He certainly has a, a good understanding of the game. Give him a shot at that level, see what he can do, and um, good for him. I'm, I'm excited to see how it works out. Moving on to the, the other front office additions, though. Peter Dinwiddie. Uh, he was previously the third in command, I believe, with the Pacers. A former sales guy, uh, which the Sixers... Always had interest in sales guys going over to the basketball side. He has made the jump, has been there for quite a while, really mentored by Donnie Walsh, over who was previously with the Knicks before going over to the Pacers. 
lot of rave reviews from from Walsh, from Larry Bird. Uh, really seems like they respect what he was able to do, respect how hard of a worker he is. Clearly knows the salary cap extremely well, which is probably what people cite most often. Uh, involved in a lot of contract negotiations. Seems like he will be a good addition to the staff. And then Prosper Karangwa, which do you know exactly what he was involved with in terms of scouting with the Magic? No, that's always sort of like the rub with grading these guys. You don't know what he recommended the GM and was overruled on or or, or what uh, decisions were made that he was against. Orlando's had an up-and-down track record um, in terms of the draft. You know, I think the Victor Oladipo, Demonis Sabonis picks were really good. They didn't give them enough time to develop in Orlando. That's not a scouting mistake, though. The um, Mo Bamba pick obviously has been a disappointment. And then Jonathan Isaac, Isaac I think, has shown a lot of promise, um, but he has been injured quite a bit. So I think they've had uh, had some hits, some misses, as most scouting departments do. But, um, you know, we'll see. So I have two thoughts on this. The first thing, and this is kind of a more organizational thought, is that it is officially Elton Brand's show. Left the door open for a president of basketball operations. Daryl Morey did quit his job in Houston, which, you know, maybe raised some eyebrows for, for half a and, second. Which, by the way, the reporting is that is that decision has been known around NBA circles for weeks before he officially did it. So the Sixers probably would have known that he would have been available for quite a while now. Yep. And, uh, you know, while Daryl said, or Fertitta or somebody said that maybe he'll end up on the East Coast, uh, does not seem like that is going to be in Philadelphia this year. Elton Brand is making the hires, and this, to me, screams, you know, regardless. I mean, Dinwiddie is, you know, the, the team is basically off the record kind of said, like, yeah, he's the number two person. And then um, and then Karangwa is, is going to be play a big part in the scouting. So these are... This strikes me as Elton kind of bringing in his, his people. That That's yep. the first thing I would say. Yep. The second thing I would say is just talking to the people in Indiana and Orlando. Look, I, I imagine that anytime people leave an organization, there are going to be rave reviews for these people. Like, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, obviously this doesn't mean they're going to kill it in Philadelphia. But from talking to the people in both of those organizations – they got two people who are really well-liked. You know, Dinwiddie, pretty cool story, rose up from ticket sales to the front office, looks like Jonah from Veep a little bit, cap guy, <laughs> good relationships around the league, you know, well-respected, all that jazz. You know, obviously a, a very well-run organization with yep. limited financial resources. And, Cor- and limited, limited not only in financial resources, but also just as in a destination for free agents. Like even, you know, disregarding... Uh, the cap flexibility, it's just not, it's a tough place to lure people to play. Yeah. Those two things often go hand in hand. Not always. Oklahoma City's spent on the tax sometimes. Um, and then Karangwa, former college player. I will have a story on those two. Theathletic.com slash Sixers beat $1. Pay, pay for it, please. Um, and I talked to a lot of people about him and. This story will be worth at least 50 cents. Sure. Yeah, least. you'll be halfway there. Then, yeah, exactly. And he's got a cool story where, you know, the magic. They kind of hired him um, from running his own scouting service. He, he he started that up, and he has just risen up their organization. And they they speak really highly of him. I I would just say with like Elton too, it screams to me that like he actually was thorough with this search, bringing in two people from very different backgrounds, very different teams. It, it seems like he came into here or into this search talking to 
bunch of different people around the league. And these are the two people that he found. So look, like I still have plenty of concerns of Elton getting the job for obvious reasons that we have talked about. But from what I can tell, they allowed him to go out and hire his own guys. And it seems like he did a decent amount of homework and he came back with two people he trusts. So good for him. Now, does this mean if they make shitty draft picks, trades, free agent signings, that we won't be all over them? Of course not. There is sure. still a ton of pressure in this um, in this market, and the Sixers are in a bad spot. But the uh, the process here seems to be okay to me, uh, better than last time. Although that is a low bar. As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use the bonus code TA Basketball and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic. Plus, up to a $1,000 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code TABASKETBALL. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game. Claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 21 plus to wager. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at one 866 2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge sports betting is void in georgia hawaii and utah and other states where prohibited promotional offers not available in nevada and new york don't forget if you haven't signed up for bet mgm yet use the bonus code ta basketball and you'll get a one year subscription to the athletic plus up to a one thousand dollar first bet offer on your first wager yeah no i think i think i think a couple things we gotta get going here because we are making yovan wait i think you can be i think the hirings are reasonable to good for what they are. Like if you're looking for a number two to come in, be sort of like your cap guy, be a negotiator, be a, a contacts guy. Like Peter Dinwiddie seems like he's more than qualified to fill that role. He seems like he's well-respected, well-liked. It seems like he has earned that opportunity. And Prosper, I think, same thing in terms of what he's asked to do. I think that's fair. I think if you have concerns about this front office, I think they're threefold. First of all, is Elton Brand experienced enough where he he can aggregate sort of all of these opinions and make the final decisions. That's really what you want from a GM. Like your GM doesn't have to be the cap guy. He doesn't have to be the analytics guy. He doesn't even have to be a scouting guy. He has to be able to aggregate all of the different opinions in that organization, uh, know what to value, know what to weight, know who to trust, know whose area of expertise fits what, and be able to sort of combine everyone else's skill set and knowledge into one decision. And look, he's still the most inexperienced GM in the league, and there's no getting around that. Two, Will management and ownership give him the leeway and the purview to run his own ship? And I think clearly there should be some hesitation and worry around that. And if those two aren't true, then sort of who you add as your cap guy doesn't really matter all that much. And then three, which we sort of haven't even gotten to, but is how he kicked off this. So you you had Alex Rucker, who was your number two in your organization. He was essentially an analytics guy who got promoted to become much more of a basketball decision maker. He's now being demoted and might end up being just an analytics guy before. 
does that indicate that Elton Brand isn't going to value analytics as highly as he should? And, you know, he, he essentially started this offseason by saying that we had to add more basketball minds. Uh, it is interesting he went out and then hired Peter Dinwiddie as number two since he does not have a traditional basketball background. I don't care about that too much. I don't believe, like I wrote in my article the other day, I don't believe you have to have the genetics to play NBA basketball to be a good basketball mind. But it is, I mean, that's what he said. He said basketball minds. And, and Dinwiddie is not that. But more importantly, since they haven't, since they demoted their analytics guy and haven't made any changes to their analytics guys, are they devaluing analytics? And I think a lot of people will look at it and say, look, Alex Rucker was essentially the number two in the organization. He was an analytics background. He clearly wasn't using analytics correctly, or, or the Sixers were not built using a good application of analytics. And that can be true. I don't think that means you then go and say the Sixers relied too heavily on analytics. I think you say we need to figure out how we can use analytics to make more informed decisions. And I, I'm not convinced Elton Brand sort of has that kind of mindset. And I do worry. I don't think this is a game, um, you know, every team in the league uses analytics to some degree. Between the demotion of Rucker and moving on from Sergei Oliva, who was essentially like he took analytics and applied it to the coaching staff and helped them with rotations and strategies. I'm a little worried that their view is this roster might be better than it was. We don't have to make major fundamental changes. We relied too heavily on analytics. Let's fix all that with the coaching staff, with less of a reliance on analytics. And I don't think that's the approach to take. And those are my concerns. And it's really nothing to do with Peter Dinwiddie or Prosper Karangwa. Um, and like you said, I, I give Brand some credit because it does seem like this is thorough. But I still have my concerns, and they're quite frankly pretty big concerns. Yeah, but but those are bigger, more overarching concerns than sure. the top people under Elton Brent, and we will just have to see how that plays out in the coming months. All right, uh, that sounds good. Thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we'll be back on in a second with Jovan Buha. All right, we are now joined by Jovan Buha, who covers the Clippers for The Athletic. So we figured it would be a good time to bring you on uh, as someone who covered Doc Rivers previously and give us sort of like a little bit of a, um, you know, rundown of, of what your thoughts are with him. So I guess we'll just start it off, uh, especially since you guys had such high expectations out there to start the season and when you entered the bubble. Um, after the sort of collapse happened, were you surprised that they, they, they went in a different direction? I was, and so were people internally with the Clippers. You know, all the conversations I had had with people inside and outside, but close to the organization, um, had suggested that they, they felt Doc was going to get another year. That that was the expectation. And even if you look at how it kind of went down, you know, they didn't part ways with him for two weeks after. And, and most of the time, you have a disappointing loss like that. Um, you know, the, the coach is fired the next day, or, or within a few days, or, or maybe even a week tops. But you know, this was something that the Clippers thought about hard. And, um, you know, it, it took several conversations between Steve Ballmer and Doc Rivers for them to ultimately decide that. Um, I know from Doc's side, he he felt a bit surprised and, um, you know, was not uh, necessarily expecting this. So, um, you know, the, the Clippers framed it as a mutual parting of ways. But it, it sounds like um, fr from what's been reported on Doc's side that he, he did not feel it was mutual. Uh, but... I mean, I think it was, um, you know, as I reported a couple of weeks ago, just this perfect storm of a lot of different things not going the Clippers' way. Um, you know, all season they, they had a bunch of injuries. They, they were one of the most injured playoff teams 
Um, you, you combine Kawhi Leonard's load management, and they just never really had that on-court chemistry or continuity, uh, not to mention some of the locker room stuff. Uh, and then you get to the bubble, and finally everybody's healthy, and then they have seven guys either arrive <laughs> late or leave the bubble at some point, um, including you know multiple starters, multiple key bench guys. So you know you look at all those factors, and it, it makes sense why this team came up short. Uh, but I, I do think some of that is on Doc, though, in, in you know so, some of the decisions he made. Um, you know, re- refusing to play Avica Zubats more, continuing to play Montrez Harrell over him in, in spite of all the data and, and the eye test and everything kind of pointing in Zubats' favor. Um, so st- stuff like that, you know, I, I think you, you can put on Doc. But overall, it, it was a kind of perfect storm for the Clippers to collapse and, and come up short. And um, I think Doc has kind of been painted as the scapegoat um, in, in, you know, kind of the aftermath of everything. So, so I'm curious about that chemistry you brought up, Jovan. The you and Sam Amick, you had a story about the the team's chemistry. I believe it was like back in January or so, middle of the season. Um, just like some warning signs about how you know maybe this was a little bit different from a team that the year before seemed like the chemistry was great. They overachieved, but they also didn't have the expectations of winning a championship. So I'm kind of curious about that because it felt to me from the outside like a team that just, it wasn't necessarily on the same page at all times, but the the on-court result for most of the regular season, I mean, this was a dominant team. They were, you know, they were top five in offense and defense, I think. They, um, it, it seemed like they, for a team that was kind of going through the motions in some ways, maybe like pacing themselves for the playoffs, and that's obviously a big thing with Kawhi Leonard. It seemed like things, at least you know the the final product. Like it seemed like it was okay. So I'm I guess I'm a little bit curious about you know you have the the holdovers from last year. That's Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, all of these guys. You have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George coming in. What what, what was Doc's role in maybe trying to figure out that chemistry? And and do you think he fell short in some aspects uh, there? I I think Doc was in a tough position because. Looking at the the situation, um, you know, on paper, it made a lot of sense, right? You you had this team from the the 2018-19 season that overachieved, made the playoffs. You had guys like Lou Williams, Patrick Beverly, Montrez Harrell stepping up. You know, they were basically cast-offs from that Houston deal, right? Like, they were basically throw-ins for Chris Paul, guys who you you kind of viewed as bench guys, maybe low-end starters. um, and, And, you know, really looking at that Clippers team, I think most people picked them to, to finish 12th or 13th in the West, and um, no one saw them making the playoffs. Uh, so f- for them to have that season, and, you know, Daniil Gallinari was part of that, Tobias Harris, Shea Gilders-Alexander, you know, different guys. But those three specifically, you know, th- they were what the Clippers got in the Chris Paul trade, and they kind of became the face of the, the team. Uh, but you add Kawhi Leonard and Paul George to that, and, uh, again, on paper, it, it makes sense. This looks like a contender. It looks like all the pieces fit. But, you know, actually fitting that together in the locker room is much more difficult. And I, I think the, the Clippers might have, you know, overestimated how easy that transition period is going to be. Because I, I think in, in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, you have two guys who are not vocal leaders. And, and you know, they will admit that. The Clippers will admit that. You know, Ty Lu admitted it yesterday. Like, the, they're more lead-by-example guys. But I, I think... The guys like Lou Williams, Patrick Beverly, who were more of those vocal leaders a couple of years ago, felt displaced because you had Kawhi and PG getting 
preferential treatment and getting that star treatment. And it just kind of created a, a little bit of a divide in locker room. And it wasn't, you know, this wasn't Kobe Shaq or, or Russell Westbrook KD <laughs> where you actually had real beef. Um, but, but there was some tension and, and, you know, with the nature of a lot of the guys on this roster, it, there was a tendency to go quiet and, and not talk to each other and not actually talk things out and, and resolve it. So, uh, as far as doc, I, you know, he was kind of forced to step in as the vocal leader, both publicly and privately, you know, he basically was the voice of the team. It wasn't Kawhi, it wasn't PG. And, and then internally he would have to have, you know, bring up some of those conversations or, or try to talk to one guy to resolve something and then go talk to the other guy to resolve it. And um, I think Doc was just in a lose-lose situation because you obviously have to placate your stars to some extent and, and keep them happy. But then he also couldn't do that too much and risk losing the role players. So I think it was really a juggling act that he never fully figured out. Um, and I do think that's going to be one of the bigger challenges of him stepping into Philly because um, you know, I don't think it's the same situation, but it, it does seem like there are some similarities in, in terms of just personality conflict and not everyone being on the same page. And, you know, this is now really his second tenure or, or second kind of era, era of a team having that, right? Because you had the same thing in Lob City. So I am interested to see how he handles it in, in Philly. So you had, um, I think the general perception of Doc from afar is that he sort of sets a really good base strategy, and then there's a little bit of concern whether or not he can adjust in the playoffs. And, I mean, the 3-3-1 three, three, losses are going to be at the top of that. But, like, just judging based off of what you said earlier in his game day adjustments, how much did you see carryover in his previous seasons and previous era with the Clippers, which would, uh, you know, give you some pause, I guess? I think that it, you you hit the nail on the head. It, it is from a base strategy. Doc is one of the best coaches in the league. Like you, you know, and and even even from talking to people around the league after his departure, there were people that I, I spoke with that said, you know, they feel it might be a mistake. Like yes, you know, he, he did not adjust well in the playoffs. You can make the case he he didn't adjust well in, in the 2015 playoffs when they blew that three one lead against Houston. Um, but you have to have a 3-1 lead to blow a 3-1 lead. And, and you know, Doc's track record is proven of he'll get you 50 to 55 wins and in, in into the second round. And, um, you know, while that might not be what the Clippers wanted and that might not be what the Sixers want, um, you know, that still is tough to do. And, and not every coach in the league can almost guarantee that if he has a competent, you know, good roster. So um, I think from that perspective, Doc is a very good coach. But to your point about adjustments, um, you know, he, he mentioned this throughout the season and at times I, I wondered if it was lip service, but it, it clearly, uh, was proven not to be, you know, doc is very stubborn and he, he believes things should be a certain way with, with regards to, he likes to run his offense a certain way. He likes to run his defense a certain way. He likes a certain rotation. And, and once he kind of puts his feet on the ground and says, this is how I'm doing it, he's doesn't like to adjust almost out of principle of just, you know, this is what's worked up to this point. You know, we should be the ones setting the tone. But I think looking back at last year's Clippers team, like one of the things you really liked about that team was that they had the versatility to adjust to their opponents. So, and, and really outplay them. Like, you know, people talked about them potentially playing Houston and it was like, if they play Houston, they can go small with, with a Marcus Morris at center or a Kawhi even at the five. And, you know, out small ball Houston. But when Doc, you know, when they played them, uh, you know, right before the hiatus, they, they stayed big and 
they ended up, you know, uh, crushing the Rockets, but the Rockets ended up, you know, they, they shot like 15% on threes. They had a really bad shooting night. But kind of the point being was like, Doc just refused to adjust um, to his opponents, which I think you have to find that balance of you don't want to overreact and panic and and pull a guy who, who's playing well, maybe because you don't think it's a good matchup for him. But you also have to be realistic. And, um, you know, when Nikola Jokic is destroying Montrez Harrell, in the pick and roll, in the post, picking him apart, the Nuggets are crashing the offensive glass. Like you have to adjust and, and bench Montrez Harrell. You know, despite him being the sixth man of the year, despite him maybe being your fourth or fifth best player in the regular season, like you have to adjust. Otherwise, you blow a three-one lead and and blow three consecutive double-digit leads. So um, I think with Doc again, like you know, maybe this experience will will be illuminating for him, and, and he'll learn from it and. Um, you know, maybe he'll be a little bit different in Philly, but I, I do think there's some concern with, he can get you to that 55 win mark. He can get you into the second round, but when it comes to the fine tuning and the adjustments and the counters, um, I, that's where my, my confidence in doc is a little bit shaky. Yeah. And I, I don't know how it couldn't be after, you know, he, he had the roster, like you said, that could play literally every style you wanted. So I think that's fair. Um, in terms of, like you being surprised that he was fired. Can you just talk about like he had become like more than a coach for that organization? Is is that correct? Like over the years, he had become almost like one of the biggest figures um, just through through everything that they had been through and kind of the multiple iterations and all that stuff. Yeah, he, he was the Clippers, right? Like because I mean, Chris Paul and, and Blake Griffin were the Clippers during Lob City and, and now it's Kawhi and PG, but Doc has been that. Um, you know, the the through line for the franchise since coming in 2013. And I think that was also another factor in um, what made it so difficult to part ways with him was, was that, you know, he led this team through the, their darkest days uh, of the Donald Sterling tapes, uh, you know, of that five-day period of, you know, were they going to play uh, against the Warriors? Were they going to boycott that game? Um, you know, was the business uh, part of the operation going to, just up and quit and leave and, and refuse to work for a, a racist owner. Um, you know, and, and he handled that chaos beautifully. And I, I think that helped, uh, you know, earn him a lot of goodwill with the franchise. It, it made him a larger than life figure. I mean, I think he probably was aside from pop, like the, the, the biggest fig, you know, the biggest coaching figure for his franchise in the NBA. You know, I, I can't really think of a, another coach who had that level of power and, and gravitas and, and just, you know, everybody liked Doc. Like no no one, um, you know, I guess some of the players, you know, maybe towards the end weren't his biggest fan. But aside from that, like everyone in the organization liked Doc. Like the, there's no ill will towards Doc. Um, he, he is a very charming guy with, with a lot of gravitas. Just, um, you know, he he almost has that, you know, politician-like uh, demeanor to him where, you know, he, he knows what to say to people. He knows how to make you feel good. And, and I think you guys will see it with the media. Like he, he's arguably the best coach in the league with the media or, you know, top three, top four. Um, so I think that that was another factor in this was that it wasn't just, you know, parting ways with a coach. It was, it was parting way with, and, and you saw it in the bubble too. Like, you know, his, his, um, you know, speeches on, on racism and, and social justice and, and different stuff going on in society. Like, um, you know, that it earned him political attention where, you, you, you know, you had, presidents talking about him and um uh, you know uh, just it was on the news and stuff and cnn and, and stuff so I, it's just like I, I think that stuff um you know 
made it more complicated because it wasn't just getting, you know, it wasn't just getting rid of a coach, but that was ultimately what the Clippers decided was like, if his name wasn't Doc Rivers and, and he had not done all this great stuff off of the court, would we have let go of him maybe a year or two earlier? And I think the answer was yes. So that that's ultimately what they decided and, and why they went in that direction. You know, I think uh, there's been a little bit of concern here with the Sixers and whether or not they're going to maybe not embrace analytics quite as much. I guess, what can you tell us about Doc, his willingness to sort of work with the front office to adjust his game plan and his, his willingness to embrace, um, you know, embrace analytics into his coaching strategy. Doc is not the most analytics friendly coach. Um, it, it was something that I think did frustrate the front office a little bit um, in conversations I had, um, you know, after his departure, uh, again, going back to the the Vita Zubats Montrez Harrell dynamic, um, you know the the lineup data in the regular season supported Vita Zubats over Montrez Harrell. Um, as our John Hollinger wrote, you know by lineup data and, and just kind of advanced metrics, like Zubats was arguably a top fifteen to, to twenty center in, in the NBA this season, which no one would expect, right? I mean, when you think about Vita Zubats, you probably think of Again, a low-end starter, a, a high-end backup, but you don't think of a guy who's arguably a top 15 center, um, but th- that was the case statistically at least. So, um, But, you know, Ivica was always capped at 16, 18 minutes a night. Uh, in the bubble, he was kind of thrown into more playing time because Trez missed a month and they didn't have another center option. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of telling that in game seven, Doc went back to Trez, even though he was the one guy that, no matter who you put him with lineup data wise, the Clippers were always getting destroyed. Um, and, and, you know, I, he had a minus 30 net rating uh, with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, which is just unfathomable. Like how, you know, how do you <laughs> lose minutes with Kawhi and PG that badly, um, you know, in, in the playoffs? So I think, you know, Doc is not someone that values three pointers. Um, I, I think, you know, it's something I asked him about r- repeatedly during the season. Well, he'll uh, fit right in with this roster. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, I will say to, to, to counter, you know, some of the, the, the doc criticism, his offenses in LA were always top five when he had the talent. Um, so I, I think he, he is really good at, um, you know, I was talking to a, a former video coordinator and, and they were explaining it to me. Doc doesn't have a, a set system and he doesn't have many plays. He's really good at out of bounds plays, uh, you know, sideline out of bounds, um, out of timeout plays. But he, what what he has are these packages. And if you look at uh, what he was able to do, especially with Lob City, um, you know, he unlocked JJ Redick. Like the, the, the JJ Redick you guys saw in Philly, the JJ Redick we've seen in New Orleans, um, you know, that was from Doc Rivers really empowering him and, and saying, JJ, you're a starter. You're going to play 30 to 32 minutes a night. We're going to run, you know, five to seven sets for you every night. We're going to get you open looks. You know, the, the first play of every game was always a floppy action for for JJ coming off that, um, you know, the, the left elbow into a jumper. So he, he did that with JJ, with, with DeAndre Jordan. He, he really empowered him in the pick and roll as a roller and, and getting him involved early in games. So I, I think Doc, while you know he he isn't going to run the most modern offense, he's not the most progressive or innovative coach, and, and ultimately that's one of the reasons the Clippers moved on from him. Um, he, the results are there again. You know, this is a guy who who can get you fifty to fifty five wins. Will get you a top five or six offense, and you know it might not be the most modern approach, but it is effective. 
Um, so I think you know, it is going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I think he's entering. What's interesting to me about this situation is, again, with the Clippers, he had amassed so much power that really looking at the dynamics, like you can make the case he was the second most powerful person in the organization behind Steve Ballmer, or at least on par with Lawrence Frank. Whereas entering the Clippers, I mean, the, the Sixer situation, he is obviously, you know, lower in the pecking order behind the the head decision makers of the front office. So I think maybe not having as much organizational power could benefit him. And maybe they've already had some of those conversations of like, hey, um, you know, if we want a certain guy to play more or we want to see a certain lineup or, or whatever, like maybe Doc will be more open to that than he was in the Clippers where he kind of ran things more. So um I would say, you know, he, he's not the most analytic friendly guy. He, he's not going to, you know, force passing or, or force um, screening or, or threes or, or some of the more modern things we, we've grown accustomed to. Uh, but I, I think, again, the, the results are there. And, and I do wonder if maybe a different dynamic will, will bring out a different version of him. That power dynamic is is something I'm curious about. Because with the Sixers, like, like you said, he... um he obviously does not have personnel control. He did gain that at some point with the Clippers, if I, if I'm not mistaken. And you know, there was always like the joke around the league that he was when he did have personnel control, he was like amassing the 2010 Eastern Conference All Stars or whatever in in 2016. So um, I'm curious. Like he obviously played a big part in getting Kawhi and uh, and PG to come there. LA also played a pretty big part, I imagine too. Um, so can I ask you, like, what was kind of his timeline in terms of, you know, relinquishing that control? Did he did he still have a lot of say in that front office? Yeah. So in 2017, the, the that was the the shifting year. Uh, that, that was a big year for the Clippers because that was, uh, you know, the, the final year of Lob City. They ended up trading away Chris Paul to the Rockets and they completely tore down the front office. So at, at that point, Doc was both head coach and president of basketball operations. Um, so th- they brought in Jerry West uh, right before the draft. And then a couple months later, um, or I think a month later, Doc was stripped of his of his title. And, and then two months later, they promoted Lawrence Frank, brought in Michael Winger, uh, Trent Redden, Mark Hughes, completely reshuffled the front office, which now I, I think has you know, become one of the better ones in, in the league if you just look at their track record. But um, it was also kind of in stark contrast with, with what Doc had done, which was um, bringing in, as you said, uh, you know, Eastern Conference veterans that he, he faced or, 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 you know, had on his roster um, in the early 2010s. So, um, I mean, the thing was, like, Doc and Lawrence are close. Um, you know, Lawrence was on his staff uh, in Boston and L.A. So, you know, they are good friends. And I think Doc still carried weight with that. Um, he, he had a good relationship with Steve Ballmer. So, um, you know, anytime uh, he he wanted to speak with him about something, you know, he he had that green light. So I think ultimately he he lost the power to make final decisions, but he, he still had a say. And I think, you know, you, you saw the, the, the team improve in, in terms of their personnel and, and just some of the moves they made. Um, but, but Doc still had a, a say on things. And I, I just think, Ultimately, you know, that was one of the things that was, I think, a reason why they moved on was, um, you know, what be it his coaching staff or, um, again, some of the lineup and rotation decisions, uh, the the front office disagreed 
Um, and, and I don't know if that was, I don't know who directly that was, um, you know, it, you know, d- d- disagreeing with Doc. But, um, you know, again, I, I keep going back to the, the Zubats Herald thing because that, that, that's what I've been told uh, by, by multiple people. But um, I think w- one thing you've seen from the Clipper side we're talking about Ty Lue is, you know, they're going to have a, a, a say in, in his coaching staff and they're going to, you know, they were talking about better, uh, being better aligned w- with the coaching staff in terms of just their vision for the team and the roster, you know, better aligning with the front office. So I think reading the tea leaves there, Doc was clearly not on the same page fully with the front office uh, by the end of his tenure. So um, again, I think that's going to be a key for him in Philly is making sure that his vision aligns with Elton Brand's vision and, and um, just kind of the, the rest of Sixers management. Because um, if not, you know that that's where I think things can go south. Definitely, and it's um, it's something that has gone south. At times <laughs> you uh, in you might not yeah. have intended it, but the rest of Sixers management carried a lot of uh, a lot of weight in that last answer. Yeah. <laughs> Sixers have a little bit of a convoluted power structure. Anyway, go ahead, Rich. Uh, last one I want to know. We have been a little bit skeptical of the idea that he is like the Tobias Harris whisper. You know, I think Tobias Harris, good player, um, certainly paid too much for him in a trade, certainly paid too much for him in free agency. But he, he did have his best, you know, I guess it was like close to a full season, you know, over two years with Doc. Um, you know, besides making threes, what, what did you see that uh, that allowed that the doc did to allow Tobias to play pretty well there. I, he ran a lot of elbow sets for, for Tobias um, put him in the pick and roll. And I, I think this speaks to um, you. Know, th- there is this reputation with doc that he doesn't like young guys. He, he doesn't play them. He, he won't develop or empower them. And, and again, I think you've seen the Clippers kind of hint at that with, with some of the stuff they've said about Ty Lue and, and how they're excited for his player development um, but one thing Doc does really well, which I, I think you saw with that group a couple of years ago, um, is he he does a really good job of playing to guys' strengths and, and trying to hide their weaknesses. And I, I think you you saw that in LA with Tobias having a near All Star season, uh, Danilo Gallinari having a near All Star season, Pat Bev, Montrez Harrell, Lou Williams, all playing you know career best basketball under Doc. Um, and part of that was the context of just not having a true all-star or, or star on that team. And, um, you know, th- them just kind of being this ragtag group that uh, on any given night could have a different leading scorer. But I also think part of it was, you know, uh, again, going, looking at like JJ Redick, DeAndre Jordan, like some of these guys, Doc can can find ways to unlock and, and really highlight their strengths. Um, and that's one of the benefits, I think, of him not necessarily having a strong ideology uh, or, or a system, you know, this, this isn't Mike D'Antoni where, you know, you, you have to conform to his system and, and fit around that. So I, I think with a guy like Tobias, um, you know, Doc made him the go-to guy. And I, I don't anticipate that happening um, in in Philly. You know, I, I think he's obviously, you know, third or fourth in the pecking order, d- depending on how you want to look at it. But, um, you know, I, I think Doc just, he, he's really good at instilling confidence in guys uh, that that he trusts and that he likes, and Tobias clearly was one of those guys. Um, so I do think, you know, you you will maybe see him play him with the second unit more. Uh, you know, get him going, um, and and just make sure Tobias is getting a, enough touches. Um, you know, I do think 
there was some fool's gold in it, obviously, where, uh, you know, Tobias just had a, a crazy shooting season. And, um, you know, I, I believe it was almost a 50, 40, 90 guy uh, that, that season. And um, really just, you know, I, I think had a, had a career year. But um, part of that was also just Doc putting him in the right spots, running, you know, a lot of plays for him on the right elbow, uh, posting him up. Um, you know, the Clippers had a, a kind of a funky lineup where, where teams have had to pick between Tobias and, and Gallo of, of who they were going to put the bigger guy on. And, and more often than not, they put it on Gallo. So Tobias had a lot of times mismatches with, with guys that were like 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, so um, he was able to post them up and, and exploit that. But, um, I, you know, again, I, I don't think he, he's going to go back to that level of play just because I, I feel like that was just a, a little bit of fool's gold, a little bit of a career year. But um, I do think his familiarity with Doc and Doc already trusting him is going to be big. And I could see him, you know, maybe getting back to, to some of those numbers and, and looking more like the Clippers version of Tobias. I guess just one more piggybacking off of Tobias. Um, you know, the Clippers trade him in the midst of a career season. Um, ostensibly, you don't think he's going to be worth the contract he eventually gets. Uh, Sixers give them a essentially a godfather offer um, and the rest is history. But how much like what do you think went into the decision not to keep Tobias Harris around? Obviously, it ended up working out like you use that cap space reasonably well. Um, but how much do you think Doc played a part in that? How much do you think he, you know, was there any trepidation, I guess, of keeping Tobias around long term? Um, and, and how much was Doc influenced in that? I don't think Doc was a part of that decision. Um, I think that was entirely on the front office. And I think um, from my understanding, they just looked at the landscape of the league and were like, you know, if if we if we get a star next summer, you know, be it Kawhi Leonard, Kevin, you know, Kevin Durant was a, a thing for a bit, sure. uh, you know, J- Jimmy Butler, um, you know, could Tobias be that number two on a title team for us? And they ultimately decided, no, that, that, you know, that was not the case. So, you know, realistically, he would probably be a number three at best, but given the the contract demands and what he was likely going to get, they didn't feel that he was going to get paid as a number three. Um, so they decided that, you know, it, it is a risk to move on. There's a chance we strike out and, and don't, um, you know, end up getting a star or, or two stars this off season. But it, you know, if, we, you know, the worst thing you can do is, you know, pay a guy uh, more than he's worth, especially at at that level. You know, it's one thing to maybe pay a guy seven million when he's worth two million, but to pay someone forty million when maybe they're worth twenty million, like that, that that's where your your cap sheet gets crippled. And I'm sure you guys are uh, aware of that. So um, I think that was that was more the Clippers thinking. But but from from Doc, like you know, Doc wants to win, and obviously losing Tobias on that team, um, you know, they they became a worse team, uh, you know, marginally, it wasn't a big, uh, you know, drop off, but, um, th- that did decrease their ceiling. So I-, I think doc, you know, wanted to keep Tobias. I, I don't know if he wanted to resign him necessarily, but I-, I know he wanted to keep him past the deadline. So, um, you know, I think that was more of a front office thing uh, of just projecting out what, how they viewed Tobias long-term and d- deciding he was not a top two guy on a championship team. Yeah, as I, as I was asking that question, I was trying to remember exactly the Clippers cap situation. I think Tobias had like a 20 mil cap hold, and I think the Clippers would have had enough for one max free agent that offseason, even with his cap hold, but not two or something like that. Yeah, it was um, going tri- to get tricky. Yeah, fi- finances were obviously a, a, a big part of that. And, and yes, we have mentioned the Tobias Harris contract 
and paying him $40 million <laughs> once or twice here over the last couple year. times, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. One more and then we will let you go and we appreciate your time. But just g- generally speaking, knowing doc, his personality, how he likes to coach, what his strengths and weaknesses are and what the Sixers roster is. How do you think he fits in with this team and, and, and with what they need out of a, uh, a head coach right now? I think it's a good fit. Um, you know, I, I do think ultimately looking at the East, um, and the level of coaching in the East right now, like I, I think you could, I would make the case, you know, the, the level of coaching at the top of the East is better than the level of coaching at the top of the West. Um, you know, going up against guys like Nick Nurse, Eric Spolstra, Brad Stevens in the playoffs, like that does give me a little bit of trepidation um, just with, you know, like Doc, I mean, Rick Carlisle, I think is a great coach, uh, but but I, I would make the case Doc was outcoached by Rick Carlisle and, uh, Mike Malone in consecutive uh, playoff series uh, this postseason. So um, looking at the, the the names he's going to have to go up against in the East, like that that would worry me a little bit. Um, but I think from day one, um, or you know, it, it's already past day one. But for, from training camp, I guess you're going to see him talk up Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and say, you know, they have the potential to be the best duo in the league. And he's going to say Joel's the best big, uh, you know, the best post scorer. He's going to say Ben's the best passer and, and you know, the, the closest thing to LeBron. And um, he's really going to pump those guys up. So I, I think for Did those you guys, know, Jovan, that when those two play, the Sixers win seven, or 65% of their games. <laughs> I, he I mentioned said, that about three times during his did, intro he, press conference. Hey, look, yeah. he, he's in analytics. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so he, he's going like he's going to play that game. He, he plays the media game really well. Like first thing he said when he got to the Clippers was DeAndre Jordan is, you know, has Bill Russell level potential defensively and, and should win multiple defensive play of the year. So he, he's going to play that game. Um, and I know we kind of, you know, scoff at that and, and laugh at it, but that matters to players. And, and, you know, I, I think, um, you know, I, I don't know ultimately how much it's going to matter to Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons, but like he is going to sing their praises um, ad nauseum and, and really just pump up how good they are, how good they are together. Um, you'll probably hear that uh, number referenced, uh, you know, in, so I think ultimately, like, I think he's going, you know, he's, I think he's a better coach than Brett Brown. I, I don't know to what extent, um, but I do think, you know, one of Doc's best qualities is his ability to get guys to buy in. I think the, the buy-in might be shorter lived than, than people want to admit. But again, this was a guy who sold Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on, on teaming up and, and coming to the Clippers. Um, you know, this was a guy that, that really got that Lob City team um, into a different headspace, I think, initially uh, upon arriving there. This is the guy that they got the Celtics to buy in with the big three. So I think from the beginning, like he, he's good at getting guys on the same page, getting them to buy in. Um, I, I just think, you know, that only lasts a, a season or two based on his track record. So I'm, you know, longer term, I, I don't really know how good of a fit he's going to be. But I think over the next couple of years, um, you, you, I think you should see a Sixers team that is battling for that, you know, two, three, uh, you know, four seed um, in that heavily in that mix, uh, a team that if it goes back to 82 games could win, you know, 54, 55, 56 wins um, and, and get to the second round and, and maybe even make a conference finals. Um, I, I just think at the highest levels based on his last few years in the playoffs and, and really his, his inability to keep guys on the same page in the locker room and make adjustments at the highest level. 
Um, I, I do have some concern about him actually winning a championship with the Sixers or, or maybe getting them past the conference finals. That's fair. All right. I think uh, I think that's probably just about all that I have. How are you, Rich? I'm good, man. All right. Well, we appreciate this very much. Thank you for jumping on and best of luck out in uh, out in L.A. Appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me on.